Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 15 Bridgman bent, cupped his hands under Butcher's shin and hoisted the cockney through the window. Blake had most of his men in the back rooms of the house, the ones which faced divisional headquarters to the east and the lower hospital to the south. He was as worried about the gap below them as Bridgman was. They've been mortaring hell out of Div HQ. He looked across the open ground towards the tennis courts and the hotel beyond them. They must have hit a lot of their own chaps too. The POWs don't stand much chance in there, but they've started to dig in now. How's it going the other way? Bridgman looked at the German prisoners huddled behind the wire netting which surrounded the tennis courts. He supposed he should feel sorry for them, but he didn't. If they were unwounded, they shouldn't be prisoners. He looked back at Blake's cheerful, smiling face, at his blue eyes, still bright though the whites were veined with red, at his broken nose and pugnacious chin with its harvest stubble of fair hair. He looked to the right of the window where Cobbold and Ewing crouched behind their Bren gun, its muzzle pointing to the left of the hospital at the gap between it and the trees. A German patrol got itself shot up by three platoon. Mr Brown let them come on till they were caught out in open gardens with glass houses behind them. I should think they were cut about a bit. They both grinned at the weak joke. Well, where do we go from here, sir? I shouldn't think we do, Bob. We just stick it out and hope to Christ Second Army extract their stuffing digit. They've had it well and firmly in for six bloody days now. What's the news about 30 Corps, sir? The last I heard was they were still at Nijmegen. Do you think they stopped to go to the flicks? Nothing had surprised me, Bob, nothing. The bridge is gone, hasn't it? Yes, the bridge is gone, and 2nd Battalion with it. I wonder if Johnny Frost is still alive. They did a bloody fine job down there on their own. If 2nd Army had been only two days late, they could have still got over the bridge. What about the Poles? A chap from the field hospital told me they'd dropped their para-brigade, but they can't have landed on the dropping zone they were meant to come in on. That was just south of the bridge, and it must be alive with stuff in Huns by now. They landed at Drill, immediately below us. They formed a perimeter on the south bank, so it'll be nice and comfy for Second Army when they arrive. If they arrive. They both stopped talking and listened. That was our chaps. Get most of your men to the back. Come on, O'Neill. Bridgman and O'Neill were out of the room and heading for the rear of the house before the last words were out of the platoon commander's mouth. Blake left Cobbold and Ewing with the Bren to watch the gap below the hospital. He took Bignall and Adams with him into a back room, and as he shouted to Marsden in the house above him, he saw Bridgman and O'Neill sprinting across the last of the forty yards which separated them from the rear of Gorman's section. Marsden's face appeared at an upstairs window, and Blake shouted to him to get his men to where they could cover the gardens. He looked back and saw Bridgman disappear through a back door. 
the automatic fire was intense and Blake spotted the muzzle flash from a machine gun in Murray's position. Gorman's houses blotted out his view of the road where he guessed the trouble to lie. It was the first time since they had landed that Blake's and Marsden's men had not contributed directly to an action in which the platoon was involved and this made Blake feel uncomfortable and apprehensive. He couldn't see. He didn't know what was going on. He had to resist the temptation to slip over to Gorman's houses and find out for himself. What happened, Sergeant? It was Adams who spoke, his voice carrying a slight squeak of bewilderment. Blake looked at him and laughed. Adams was getting better, improving as a soldier every day, but the sergeant found it impossible to imagine the youngster as an adult. He was so open to surprise, ingenuous when confronted by the unexpected. Blake looked back towards the screening houses. It would be a pity if Adams was killed. It would be a loss to the world of one tiny scrap of naive freshness from its meagre store. I don't know, Adams. Jerry's having a bash at one of the other sections. Probably only patrol. We'll find out soon enough. Just keep your eyes skinned. Begnall opened his mouth to speak and then changed his mind. He'd been about to say something deflating to Adams, but he had stopped in time. He'd once seen Blake lose his temper with a man who had taken advantage of another's inexperience to humiliate him, and he decided he didn't want to repeat with himself on the receiving end. Butcher wandered into the room through the door behind them. You blokes don't know how well off you are. You should have been that stuffing hospital with me. Hospital? More like a stuffing morgue. More stiffs than wrigglers. Me? I was glad to get out of it. Every time I saw a bloody M.O. I thought he'd come round to polish me off. Butcher paused and then added darkly, I reckon there's been a lot of that phthasia balls going on. Haven't got time for them all, you see. What they do is patch up the ones they think they can save and the bad ones, the ones that will die anyway, they just give them an helping hand. Suppose it's the best way, really, as long as it's not you that's being helped. The three soldiers by the window didn't answer or even turn round. Butcher shrugged his shoulders at their backs. I'll make a brew if I can find any water, if I can find any tea, if I can find a tommy cooker. He got as far as the door and then spoke again over his shoulder. Here, Sarge, do you think I'll get a medal? Wounded soldier, two fingers missing, fights on with his comrades. I can almost see the headlines, can't you? Blake continued to look out of the window. If you encouraged Butcher, he kept on forever. Butcher went out, grinning to himself. None of them knew how to cope with him, and he loved every minute of their uncertainty. When he had gone, Adams glanced at Blake. Is that right, Sergeant? Do they finish them off if they're too bad? No, that's just old soldiers talk. Keep your eyes on the far end of that stable. If they slip past McEwen, they'll come through that way. Sometimes they did finish them off, but who knew how often it happened? Although he'd been joking, Butcher was right. There must be occasions when it was the best, the right thing to do. He'd seen men with their stomachs hanging out like gutted rabbits. Not always in pain, but with expressions of shocked incredulity on their faces as they stared with disbelieving eyes at what should have been smooth, unblemished skin. He had seen men who in the first minutes after being wounded were fascinated, hypnotised by the change wrought in their bodies. But the fascination soon went from their eyes to be replaced by a horrified recognition of the ultimate consequences of what had been done to them. After that came the penultimate look of utter despair. The firing had stopped some 20 minutes earlier and Blake waited impatiently for news. The shelling and mortaring of the entire area held by the division had intensified. To some extent it drowned the incessant chatter of small arms fire which in some place or another was continually being exchanged as German patrols and localised attacks thrust against or probed the airborne men's positions. Every now and again, concentrated automatic fire signalled that a more concerted and determined attack was being made by the enemy, or that covering fire was being given for some necessary friendly movement. When Bridgman reappeared, he was accompanied by O'Neill and a second man whom Blake could not identify. 
Adam said, I think it's... Wi-. His voice died away in a mumble. Blake looked sharply round. Who? What did you say? Nothing. It can't. Nothing, Sergeant. Bignall said, it's Waterson. It looks as if he's been hit. His arm's in a sling. Looking again, Blake too recognised the soldier as the small group disappeared into the stable that was being used as a first aid post. Adams watched the movement of the men with his eyes, but his mind travelled three days back in time. For one moment, when Blake had asked the question, Adams had been certain that the third soldier was Wilcox until he remembered that it could not be. His last memory of Wilcox was how, after he'd been hit once, he had still clung to the window frame, striving to claw his way back into the room. Adams saw again the mortar bomb bursting behind him, and Tom Marsden looking down at where he lay out of sight in the little front garden. Adams brushed his eyes. Bignam was right. It couldn't be Wilcox. Bridgman and O'Neill joined Blake just as Butcher brought in a jug of tea. They left the Cockney to keep an eye on the other sections and moved into the room with Cobbold and Ewing to drink it. Bridgman sent O'Neill for Marsden, and when the corporal arrived, the platoon commander put them all in the picture. It was only a patrol, and I should think only one of them fired. He was probably the leading scout, and he got as far as the gap between the houses at the angle where the road turns. It was just bloody hard luck that Murray and three of his men were out laying a tank trap. Five minutes earlier or five minutes later, and they might have caught the whole patrol in the middle of the road. Waterson's been hit in the arm, not too badly from what I saw of it, and Murray's been hit in the calf of the leg. He won't leave the section, so Brogan's going over to see him when he's patched Waterson up. Bridgman turned to Marsden. I've managed to get a couple of your pals out of the hospital above Company HQ. They're with Gorman now. Marsden grinned and raised his eyebrows in inquiry. Fraser and Hardy? Bridgman smiled back. Yes, Fraser and Hardy. I don't think they wanted you to know. Any message for them when I see them? Marsden grinned even more savagely. No, not really. Just tell them I know they'll keep a stiff upper lip and set us all a fine example at the end if there's nothing left to do but die like English gentlemen. The six of them laughed at Marsden's barbed words, but Adams's laugh was a little uncertain. To him, Marsden's humour always sounded a little too vicious to be funny. Adams had to remind himself that Fraser, Hardy and Marsden were friends. Blake walked to the top of the cellar steps with the last of the tea. A few steps down, he found Signaler Dwyer slumped against the wall, his headphones round his neck and his set at receive. He woke him and handed him the mess tin, watching him grow more alert as he drank. Dwyer put the empty container on a step beside him. Afraid I must have dropped off, Sergeant. It's bloody hard to stay awake, just sitting. I know, but try to keep your earphones on. If they're just round your neck, anything coming through might be too faint to wake you. Anyway, I'll send Bignall down to relieve you for a couple of hours. He's all right on one of these sets, isn't he? Well, yes, he's better than most of them. Blake went back and sent the other man down. Then he climbed the stairs to the top of the house, looking cautiously out of each window in turn. To the east, the scenery looked bruised and shattered, as if a giant hand had run its fingers idly through the trees, stripping the leaves and tearing the bark. He could hear sniping from above the crossroads, where one platoon faced east into Arnhem, and he wondered how those other men he knew so well were getting on. He sat on a narrow bed and looked at the sky above the Hartenstein Hotel, trying for the first time since he had landed to rationalise the whole complex situation. At first, his mind shied away from the immediate and intuitively convincing conclusions. He sat up on the bed and took deep breaths, disciplining his body as a requisite to the marshalling of his thoughts. The division, as a division, was finished. No amount of optimism could enable anyone to visualise it being reformed before the war ended. The 1st British Airborne Division was already reduced to small groups of men in houses and holes in the ground, fighting to hold an area 1,200 yards long by under a 1,000 wide, in the faint hope that it would form a lodgement for Second Army if it succeeded in crossing the Rhine. 
Blake had no idea as to the effective strength of the division, but he guessed that it had been reduced to somewhere between three and 4,000 men. Their own company was already below half-strength. First Para Brigade, except for the elements under Major Lonsdale, had virtually ceased to exist. Fourth Para Brigade was now only about 250 strong, one-eighth of its original strength. These two brigades had been the ones constantly in the attack for the first few days after landing. They had not been attacking the line of communication troops which intelligence had assured them would be the only opposition in the early stages. They had been attacking the tanks, guns and infantry of two crack panzer divisions under the command of General Bittrich. Many other units had had more casualties than the independent company. The South Staffs had been nearly wiped out and the King's own Scottish borderers had taken a severe beating as they withdrew over the railway embankment. Blake fumbled till he found a bent cigarette. He lit it as though watching the action of someone else. That was just bloody tiredness. He shook his head and looked out of the window again, taking deep, lung-filling drags at his cigarette, and he thought about the company. About old Tim Jordan in his company HQ up by the crossroads, never far from his wireless set, never using it unless it became absolutely necessary. Waiting, always waiting for news that one of his platoons was under pressure. Then Blake thought about one platoon, The last runner from company headquarters had told him that Ramsden and his men were holding houses on one side of the street and the Germans the houses on the other, only 30 or 40 feet between them. Movement there must be difficult, if not impossible. As for three platoon, it had suffered the most casualties. It was well below half strength and all its section commanders had been killed or wounded. Blake found himself thinking methodically about his own platoon, as if he were going through the nominal role of its remnants. He wondered what Bridgman really thought about it all. It was hard to know with any certainty. One would have to know Bridgman as a man and to believe that he looked upon you as a man. This was nearly impossible. Bridgman seemed to view everyone primarily as soldiers. His like or dislike of an individual was more than tempered by his opinion of their martial ability. Frank Gorman was all right. As for Murray in headquarters section, Blake had no doubt about Murray's guts, only his ability. Murray was out to prove something that he was as good a section of commander as the others. This worried Blake, and to some extent he blamed Bridgman for the circumstances which made Murray think it necessary that he had to prove anything. Theoretically, Bridgman had a good case. Headquarters section was for the defence of platoon headquarters, and in the role that units of the company had to play, headquarters was more often than not where the Eureka had been set up. The infantry sections would be in position at some distance, and it was headquarters section which formed the last line of defence round the radar equipment. It was logical that Murray's section should normally be kept in reserve, but after the company's pathfinding role had been completed, it no longer made much sense. Blake thought about the individual survivors. Bignall, the Canadian canteen Romeo, whose successes with the girls tended to make him unpopular with some of the other men. Quiet Cobbold, the Lance Corporal in charge of Blake's Bren Group, a market gardener in civilian life, he had one of the best eyes for ground in the company. Ewing, who had taken Hardy's place on the gun, had been a printer, and it was his trade which was probably responsible for his careful attention to detail. He could always be trusted to do the right thing. The mental images of his men slid out from Blake's mind, and he found himself thinking about his family, about his father who had taught him his trade as a stonemason, and his mother, younger sister and elder brother. A vivid picture of his home in Worcestershire appeared for a moment in the sky above the Hartenstein Hotel, and so real did it seem that he half rose from the bed to go to it. He rubbed the back of his neck, gouged at his eyes, and massaged the sides of his head, forcing his ears backwards and forwards till they hurt him. God, he was tired. He stood up, 
He would go and see Marsden. There was not much they could do except wait, but he would try to work out some constructive fire plan with the corporal. Marsden would either cheer him up or irritate him. Whichever it was, it would wake him up a bit. Bridgman and O'Neill had gone on their rounds again as soon as they had drunk their tea. Blake wondered how Bridgman kept going. He hardly ever rested for more than a few minutes. Any section could expect him at any time of the day or night. Blake thought it was a high degree of nervous energy which kept Bridgman on the move. It might not always be the best thing for a platoon commander to be moving about, but it certainly inspired the men with a measure of confidence and a feeling that someone in authority was alive to their difficulties and discomfort and was prepared to share them. They also knew that the moment trouble hit them, Bridgman would be on his way to join them. It was nearly dusk when O'Neill joined Blake and Marsden in the most northerly of the two houses. Mr Bridgman says stay the night with Sergeant Gorman. Blake's laugh died as a sigh in his chest. He was too tired to laugh, even at O'Neill's strange phraseology. Lance Corporal Summers has blown up an SP with his pit. It was a very good shot. O'Neill paused and ran his tongue pleasurably around his lips. All the Germans we killed as they tried to get out. Sergeant Murray's tank trap did not work. He is very angry. A knot in the line caught in the loop. Tonight he goes out to put it right with rope. Mr Bridgman has been to the commanding officer. He says the Germans are calling our position the cauldron. He thinks it is a compliment. I cannot understand why. In the desert there was a cauldron. General Ritchie lost 400 tanks in it. Was that funny? Was that something to be proud of? I would sooner be the fire round the cauldron. Sometimes I think the English enjoy losing. Perhaps they think it more sporting to give an advantage to the other side, eh? Marsden grunted angrily, but Blake smiled. The German Jew was a very intelligent man, and the sergeant was interested in his views. Why do you think it's gone wrong, O'Neill? What do you think caused the cock-up? O'Neill pursed his lips. I do not wish to offend, he said. You won't offend us, and in any case, what the bloody hell does it matter if you do? O'Neill shrugged, and his answer came precisely, didactically. I think the operation was prepared with great care. The staff work involved to bring the gliders at 15-second intervals was magnificent. I think the elan of the two parachute brigades in their attacks was superb. And I think the determination of the defence, now that there is no hope of the Second Army getting across the river, is greatly to be admired. I think the planners and commanders gave much thought to the operation. I think they considered every detail except one. It is a pity they forgot the Germans. Had they remembered them, they would have done many things differently. It is better to have a hundred men break their legs falling off roofs in the town than it is to have a thousand killed trying to get there. It would have been better if some planes had been shot down by the flat guns in the town dropping the division near the objective they wished to take. This would have been better than dozens being shot down and hundreds being hit as they dropped supplies on zones we have never taken because we were too far away in the first place. I think this is an ambitious and daring operation and that it would have worked if we had landed near the bridge. O'Neill paused and then continued. And if the planning staff had remembered that the Germans would react quickly and angrily to an attempt to cross the Great Plain to Berlin. Blake stood up. What O'Neill said made sense. The operation was sound and logical, provided one did not go back and question the first false premise that only light resistance would be met in the initial stages. The moment that one considered the possibility that a considerable armoured force could be brought to bear in a matter of hours, then the whole operation became nothing more than a desperate gamble. He nodded at O'Neill. Well, I'm off to my own house for the night. It'll be dark in half an hour. You'd better join Bridgie now. If you leave it any longer, somebody might make a mistake in the bad light and get a bit trigger happy. Together, they slipped out through the same window and went their separate ways.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.